Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Good morning, church. Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Ruth. And we'll be reading the whole chapter. It has 22 verses. Ruth chapter 1, from verse 1 to 22. In the days when the judges ruled, there was, a, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Horeb that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that will take them back to the land of Judah. Now Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why will you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons, any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's, hands, the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Opa kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. 
May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made, me, made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite. Her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the, as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, I'm Jo. I'm on the team here. I wonder, I wonder if you've ever stolen anything. Have you ever stolen anything? I know, I know, I know you probably haven't, you probably haven't. I wonder, I wonder if you think it's okay to steal something if it's a Christian thing, if it's, if it's a Christian book. Is that okay to steal? I wonder if there's a few of us in the room who maybe have borrowed a book for a really long amount of time and maybe not thought to return it. Maybe you've got a few books on your bookshelf with a few other people's names in them. I know I have. You might have one of mine. You know, who knows? But I have to say, I'm even worse than that because I definitely borrowed a book and I honestly don't think I ever had an intention of giving it back. So I would have to say I did steal it. Now, this particular book it compelled me. It like, it's like it was calling out to me from the shelf. I was on holiday I'm in my late teens, and this book called to me. And honestly, I read the first page, and I knew this was it. I was going to have to keep this book for a little while. It's going to come up on the screens. Some of you might be familiar with it. I met in these pages the story of a woman whose life compelled me in such a way that it changed everything for me. And I met the Holy Spirit in these pages, I met the Holy Spirit in a powerful way, and there's something about a life poured out as you read this story, something about a life poured out that changed the way that I approached my own faith and my own life. Now, this is a book um, called Chasing the Dragon, if you can't quite read it. This is actually the, the cover that I, there's a lot of nicer covers now. This is the old style, probably like written in the 80s one, um, but this is the one that like, makes my heart sing because it's the one that I read. Um, this is a book about a woman called Jackie Pullinger. Some of you may have heard her name, even if you haven't read the book. She's pretty famous now um, within a certain circles. Um, but she wasn't back when she started out. She was 22 when Jackie boarded a boat, a ship, and said to the Holy Spirit, 22, just remember, 22. I'm 30. She was 22. Just got out of Royal College of Music, British young woman from London, boarded a boat and said, Holy Spirit, tell me where to get off. Tell me where to get off. She disembarked in Hong Kong in the end. She got off the boat in Hong Kong in a place called the Walled City. It actually doesn't exist anymore. It was torn down um, a, a while ago now. Um, but she lived there. She, she stayed there. This place was a place um, that really you could only survive through a life of crime. It was a lawless place. It didn't actually live under the law, the law system in Hong Kong, um, which is why she spent her life, really. She, spent, she still lives there, still lives in Hong Kong, 
um, but spent her time um, with addicts, with prostitutes, with everyone who society had rejected. She followed the Holy Spirit there, and that is part of what makes this a radical witness to me. There's a few things that I notice about Jackie's life that they're, they're sort of postures that I think are actually, they're subversively powerful. They cut underneath the surface. And there's three things that I want us to notice about her life before we move on. Number one, she was dependent. Jackie was so dependent, she had no idea what she was doing. I mean, she, she was so dependent, she literally asked the Holy Spirit, tell me where to get off. I don't even know where you're asking me to go. She's that dependent. She didn't know the language. She learned Chinese while she was there. She's been there 50 odd years now. She knows it pretty well, but she didn't have a clue when she went there. She didn't know where she was going to go, so how could she learn the language? She didn't know what she was going to do. She spent a life working with addicts, but she had no training. She didn't know how to help addicts off drugs. She didn't know how to help these young men get out of gangs. She had no idea. She didn't have a social work degree. She was completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. She didn't have a strategy. She felt the Holy Spirit tell her, you've got to pray over these addicts in tongues, and they're going to experience healing in a way they never thought they could. That's what she did. In a recent interview, Jackie said that, she was asked, what drives you, Jackie, what drives you to do what you're doing? She's in her 70s and she's still going. What drives you? She said, oh, no, no. Christians aren't driven. Christians are led. Satan drives. Addiction drives. Christians are led by the hand, by the spirit. It was a bit of a check in my spirit. I was like, oh, yeah. I was probably quite a good thing to note when I'm feeling driven. Maybe that's not actually God. Maybe that's fear. Maybe that's ambition. Maybe that's not God. Interesting to know that. Second thing about her life, her posture, she was sacrificial. She gave it all. She had everything going for her. She was 22. She had a life ahead of her. She had a, a degree from the Royal College of Music. She was a talented young woman. And she gave it up. She gave her right as a British citizen up. The life of a comfortable young woman, she gave it up for something she didn't even know what it was going to be, but she gave it up for relative obscurity. She didn't know that she was going to write a book. For all she knew, no one would ever hear her name again. The third thing that I see in Jackie's life that compels me is her devotion. When you listen to her um, speak, it is, you're just amazed at her love for Jesus. She's just devoted to him and devoted to his people. She's lived a lifetime of commitment to God and his people. Now, why am I telling you about this woman, Jackie, this morning? Well, I think she pours her life out in a similar way to our friend Ruth that we've heard about this morning already. The story of Ruth is, is wedged in between these sort of monster books of Judges and 1 Samuel. And we have this tiny little book, Ruth, just four chapters, four short chapters about a little woman called Ruth. But I think she carries great weight. And I think she's worth our time this morning and for the next few weeks. Her story sits in the midst of the, the dark days of the Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it's pretty brutal. 
There's a lot that is going on. It's, a day, it's days of turbulence. It's almost like the sort of Israelite version of the Middle Ages, like everything goes. At the end of the book of Judges, it literally said, the last verse of Judges, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. They were just in a desperate attempt to maintain some sort of order in the midst of chaos. Israel had been pendulum swinging between worshipping Yahweh, idolatry, worshipping Yahweh, idolatry, back and forth and back and forth. They were confused. They had no idea what they were doing. We read in our text that there was a famine in the land. There's a real struggle going on here for the people of Israel. And then... This Ruth's own personal struggle that we'll get to in a minute. I'd love us to spend some time this morning reading through the text, decoding it, because actually there's a lot in here that I think we would find um, great life in. So why don't you turn to the text with me? If you've got a Bible, or oh, some of the bits are going to appear on the screen as well. So we're going to whiz through it, and I'm going to draw attention to a few things. Start verse 1. In those days, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in Moab. Bethlehem. That sounds familiar. Well, you're right. It is the same Bethlehem that you know. It's a famous place for many reasons. One main reason that Jesus was, of course, born there. But the fact that the author mentions this right at the start of this story is actually really significant. It indicates something about the situation that Ruth finds herself in, well, Naomi finds herself in initially. Bethlehem, it actually directly means house of bread. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. There's a bit of an irony that the author wants to pull out in this first verse. Bethlehem, where they begin, is a house of bread. It should be a house of abundance, of plentiful food. And yet, we read that they are in a famine. They're in a famine. What does that say about God? This land that's been named house of bread, house of abundance, you will have everything you need here, Israelites. It's in a state of famine. Perhaps the author is even suggesting there's some level of judgment from God here, some level of a removal of favor even. But then we get verse two, the man's name was Elimelech. Now just as important as place names are in this story we need to recognize, names are really important here too. People's names. Elimelech means Yahweh, God is king. My God is king. So we've got this tension from the outset of the story. We've got this tension of, it doesn't look like it's working how it should. Bethlehem, house of bread, in famine, not how it should be. And yet we've got this, this family who were saying from the outset, God is my king. We've got this tension of the two things that are held together in this story, and that will be a theme all the way through. This author wants to be clear that the family position is Yahweh is king. In a list, you've got to remember, at this time, there were so many gods that you could choose from. It's very difficult for us to get our heads around, but there, there are regional gods, and we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about that as we go through the story, because Moab has their own god. That's a different god. So it's significant that Elimelech is saying, God is my king. But nevertheless, 
they head to, they head to Moab in the face of famine. And this is an interesting part of the story because everything starts to go wrong. Verse 5, let's skip to there. Both Marlon and Kilion also died. So Elimelech died. Naomi is left without her two, two sons and her husband is gone. We have three women on their own in Moab without very much hope of anything at all. And in verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So they've lived this sort of ten decade in Moab. They've experienced this grief. And then they get to this point of, honestly, for, what, for three women on their own in a foreign land is not a great place. It's, again, very hard for us to understand that. But there's not much hope, especially for Naomi. And here they are, considering going back to Bethlehem. Why do they do this? Well, they need to, quite honestly. They need to. Naomi has no hope in Moab. She has, as she goes at length to, to um, tell us from verses 8 to 13, as I think Pat was chuckling behind me, you know, there's this sense of like, what do you expect me to do? I'm not going to have any grandchildren. It's not going to get any better for me. She's bemoaning this state of affairs. Naomi knows that she's got no chance as a foreigner in the land. And the normal custom would be for the, the wives, the widows of the husbands that have died, would go back to their families in Moab and remarry um, and stay in their own country. That's what Naomi is urging them to do. So Orpah does the sensible thing, heads home. But Ruth cuts through this story. I mean, this, this is, the, this is the, the linchpin of the story. If this doesn't happen, the whole story of Ruth doesn't happen. It's a turning point in the story. Verses 16 to 17. If you're familiar with Ruth at all, you'll be familiar with these verses. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. The predictable future of the story for both of these women Suddenly, all bets are off. What could happen here? It's intercepted by the choices that Ruth makes. It's a powerful choice that she makes here. Just like Jackie's, it's a powerful choice. She takes what she has in this moment and intercepts the story. And we're going to explore a little bit about what this kind of power is, this kind of subversive power as we go. But I want us to just finish um, this chapter so we get the full picture. So verses 20 to 21, don't call me Naomi. So they've gone back. They've gone back to the land where Naomi's from. And they're saying, Naomi's back. And she's saying, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has brought me back empty. For Naomi, these things that have happened in her life have happened to her. Do you sense the sort of passivity in her speech? It's not void of anger, but it is passive. Things have happened to her. And it's caused her to question God's goodness. It's caused her to question is God faithful? Is my God faithful? Has God forgotten me? 
Are they at at the whim of a sort of tempestuous God who may or may not come through at any given point? Is he faithful or is he not? That's honestly the question that is lying behind this whole book. Is God faithful to his people? Now, as I've said, names, names are important in this book. And in these verses, verses 20 to 21, we see an interesting shift. Naomi changes her name. This isn't just a sort of like a lash out moment. It's not like, you know, when you get your hair cut when you've had a breakup and you just want to sort of make a statement and prove something. It's not that. This is significant. It's a significant moment because names are important. Names at this time were identity statements. They were permanent identity statements. So Naomi changing her name is making a permanent identity statement about who she thinks she is and who she thinks God is. Or maybe even who she thinks God thinks she is. If you can track with that. It's a statement about herself, but it's also about God. She's bitter because God, in her view, has not provided for her. Or so she thinks. We may see different as the story unravels. I wonder whether you resonate with that. Do you resonate with that? I wonder whether there's been any point in your life where you've experienced that sort of level of powerlessness that Naomi was likely experiencing at this point. Things have happened to her. Things have happened to her that she feels were out of her control and she's experiencing suffering because of that. Some of us experience powerlessness in illness, in disability, in our race, our gender, in suffering, in social class, relationships, financial status. There's so many ways that we can feel powerless. So many ways. Sometimes we can be born into it. Sometimes we can find it a bit like Ruth and Naomi along the road. Maybe it finds us. And what's our response? Well, maybe like them, there's a sense of grief, of shock, maybe of emptying. The Lord has emptied me. And like Naomi, we might find it tempting to change our names. Maybe not literally, but metaphorically. We might start to say things, believe things about ourselves that encompass our whole lives, our whole identities, become shaped by one area of powerlessness that has become our whole lives. One thing happens to us and it defines us. One thing is seemingly taken away from us and and actually rather than sort of um, keeping that in its own space, we sort of say, okay, well, this is me now. I don't have any power. I've experienced this, therefore, my responsibility, I can't own that. I can't own anything anymore. My power is completely diminished. Now, we don't live in a fair system, do we? Things happen. That is our reality. Suffering happens. And just like with Naomi, I don't think anyone would want to diminish what has happened in our lives. 
But I do think sometimes Satan can have a field day in this area. Because what is one thing in our lives becomes suddenly our whole identity. And we start looking at ourselves as the bitter man or the bitter woman, Mara. But it is into this emptiness, Naomi's emptiness, her barrenness at this point, we hear Ruth's famous words. It's why actually they're so famous. They are powerful in and of themselves, but actually their their power comes from the context into which they were said. You've got to remember that literally Naomi's just bemoaned the fact that her God has failed her. Why would Ruth turn around at that point and say, but I want your God to be my God. I'm choosing your God, even when you're not choosing your God. That's powerful, isn't it? You see, Ruth, what we see in this, in this statement is it's a different kind of emptying. She's emptying herself before God and before her friend. These are self-emptying that she, she gives here herself in a powerful way. Despite having experienced the same grief, the same loss that Naomi has, she's just lost her husband. She's not got any security either. She's giving up any security, any hope of security that she might have in the future by leaving Moab. Her family, her lineage, her family line are there. Her God is there. And she's saying, I'm going to give up even that, even my, the last bit of power that I have in the world, I'm going to give that up. And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to your God. Her choice is significant here. It's surrender. Surrender and devotion and commitment to God and to another person. Now, Mark reminded us last week that Ruth sits in um, Jesus' lineage. And I think I would go a little bit further this week in saying that Ruth, I think, is a forerunner of Jesus himself. Not just in her familial line. She reminds me of Jesus in this passage Beth, our other curate, told me this week that her and Luke had this passage read at their wedding. You can see why, can't you? There's a picture here of sacrificial love. It's a powerful passage of commitment, of giving yourself to another person. It's powerful. It it reminded me of the passage that John and I had read at our wedding. It was a New Testament passage. I'm going to turn to it. You might guess where I'm going. If I tell you that it In my mind, this mirrors, this passage mirrors some of what we see in Ruth. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. These are famous words because they tell us about the kind of God that we serve. They tell us about Jesus, who empties himself of all rights, all heavenly rights that he has. He empties himself of his own heavenly station. He lays it down for our sake. He lays down every power that he has for the sake of us. 
A theologian, N.T. Wright, says this, The pre-existent son, i.e. Jesus, regarded equality with God not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's our God. Because he is God, Jesus is able to take on human form and redeem it through the sacrifice made once for all upon the cross, all of us. We see in Jesus the ultimate self-emptying devotion to his father and to his father's people. He's the ultimate picture. And somehow, Ruth got the memo early. She figured that out before some of us, definitely myself, figured that out. That true power, kingdom power, is manifested in surrender. True power is manifested in surrender when we lay our lives down. Surrender to God, surrender for the sake of others. The interesting thing about the book of Ruth is that weirdly... God isn't mentioned by the narrator or the author that much at all. Some of the characters mention his name, but it's actually notable that God's name isn't really mentioned. He's not really talked about by the author. And scholars agree that the author is actually trying to make a point. It's not just chance. It's really unusual in the Old Testament for that to be the case. The emphasis, rather than being placed on God is placed on Ruth's actions, on her decisions. And then what God is able to do in the background in weaving together her choices and other, as we will see through the next few weeks, other people's choices make all the difference. The author wants us to see that Ruth's choices are powerful. They're powerful. And they change the course of history. They change the course of a family line. Ultimately, We see Jesus through Ruth's decisions. An ordinary life becomes this extraordinary means of grace for other people, primarily Naomi, but many after her. Ruth is an example to me of a little life laid down for the sake of a much bigger story. It's not a vast story of the Israelite history, this book. It's one little woman in the midst of it all, choosing a powerful choice, choosing to take hold of the the bit of power that she had left and laying it down for the sake of others. Similarly to our friend Jackie, Ruth was the epitome of dependent. She was the epitome of of dependence. She was the epitome of sacrificial. She gave up everything and of devoted. She was devoted. Now we're approaching a, a key date in our family calendar. Those of you who've been awa- around a little while will be aware of the orchard. The orchard is a movement of women and of men who are committed to see the freedom and the full contribution of women in our day, in the church and in the world. And 
The Orchard has a yearly conference. It's a key expression of the vision. It has a yearly conference, and it's coming up in November, November the 12th. And the theme for this year's Orchard is divine power. Let me read you the bio on the website. What does it mean to be carriers of divine power in a power-hungry world? Divine power does not grasp or strive. It does not crush or seek revenge. It's subversive. It's upside down. It doesn't play by the rules. It seeks to raise others up whilst laying itself down. It's the greatest power this world has ever seen, and it's found in Jesus. I don't know about you, but that vision compels me. It's the vision of a church on fire in the way that it always should have been, subversively, powerfully, cutting through the evil of our day in a way that only Jesus can. Why are we doing this series on Ruth? Well, this is a message for us all, not just if you're there on the 12th of November. Great if you are, but this is a message for us all because I think Ruth speaks to us all. She's not just a little woman for other women to hear about and maybe get a bit, you know, feel a bit better about ourselves. She's a story of powerful devotion. And that's a story for us, for us all. So we're going to spend some time unpacking this life of divine power. What kind of postures do we need to inhabit that kind of power? What choices do we need to make that enable God's power to be released in and through our lives? How can your heart be a vessel for that kind of power? What stands out to you in this story Today, we've heard just the first little bit of Ruth's story, and we're going to track with her for the next few weeks. But it's pretty telling of where we're going that she begins by laying it all down for her friend and her God. I wonder where it lands for you. What, what questions about power are you pondering in your head? Maybe you don't feel like you have any power. Maybe you came in this morning feeling pretty powerless. And maybe all I'm here to tell you is what power is hidden in you that you've laid down, that you've decided that you don't have any power. Maybe the Holy Spirit wants to whisper, rewrite where you've defined yourself in a way that isn't what he says about you. Or maybe you feel you've got quite a bit of power. And maybe there's a question of surrender for you. What would it look like for you to empty yourself of the rights that you feel like you have? The rights that the world tells you you have? What would it look like for you to lay those before Jesus in devotion to him and in devotion to others? So why don't we just ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to our hearts in a fresh way. Why don't you stand with me? We'd love to pray. Come Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? Speak to our hearts. 
Holy Spirit. For those of us for whom bitterness is all-consuming, I pray that you would minister to the hearts in the room who are feeling that. For those of us who have named ourselves Mara, speak to us. For those of us who are challenged and feel the, the pull of what it would mean to give our lives away, Jesus, show us how. You've done it, Jesus. You have done it. Lead us, take us by the hand and lead us. We do not strive in this moment. We sit back into you, into your grace, into what you enable in our lives through your spirit. Come in power and enable your church to lay ourselves down for the sake of your world.